can never reach back there to unmute myself. So we just, instead of making it weird and awkward, I just asked Bob to do that for me. So welcome everybody. I am so excited to get a chance to teach. I love the fact that I can get the opportunity to do this every once in a while. And um, I feel like God has really highlighted something for me that um, is important and valuable, but is also fun. Is something that we can do kind of in a fun way. So I'm just going to let you know what the purpose, where, my, where we're going with this message, is that um, I think studying the Bible is so awesome. I just cannot even tell you. And I'm sure some of you are like, yeah, big surprise, you're a pastor, isn't that your job? But there's a difference sometimes between when you study the Bible and getting real life from it to where you're excited about it. So I wanted to start with just taking a moment to give you just a little bit of a setup from my story as far as Bible study goes. Um, being in ministry for, for a while now, um, obviously you have to start somewhere, right, when you're starting to study the Bible. And I remember the very first time they put me in charge of a Bible study I'm going to be honest with you, I really did not know what I was doing. And I was so thankful that so many studies out there are video studies, right? That's your video component. And you don't necessarily have to be somebody who knows how to do much of anything because somebody else is guiding you through that. And I want to make sure that I start by saying right up front, I am not saying whatever you do for your Bible study is wrong or bad. I want you to hear this 100%. I am saying that if you've been doing the same thing for a while, start to consider some ways to kick it up a notch, to keep that excitement for yourself. And the reason that this is so passionate, uh, an issue for me, is that, you know, fast forward through many, many, many studies, many, many years of studies, many of them leading these studies, and getting to a point a few years ago, actually two years ago, where um, we are wanting to restart women's study with a more um, consistent, a more consistent schedule. And so I, I find a study that has no video component is very heavy in conversation. There's study guides you can get, but you don't have to. But it's really using the Bible, doing some study, and having conversation with other people. Now. I didn't have anybody else that was really interested at that moment in leading a women's study. So out of convenience, all right, this wasn't my choice, it's out of convenience and necessity, I was like, okay, I'll, I'll lead both the studies. We have a morning study, we have an evening study, we try to keep one in Old Testament, one in New Testament, just to keep it interesting and be able to accommodate the things that people are interested in looking at. So as we get that, you know, at one point I'm thinking, am I crazy? What am I doing to myself here being in these two studies? And what God did during that moment of necessity, what he put me into, is that he showed me how no matter where I am in the Bible, he has something for me right at that very moment. And something that even though I thought I had read it before, how many of you have done like a year, you know, reading the Bible through in a year and you read it and then you, you, you go back and you are studying something and you're like, well, wait a second, I know I've read the whole Bible and I don't remember this story at all. Well, this is where we come into sometimes when we're looking for quantity that we feel the pressure of that we have to read so many books for a study that we're in where we're skimming. And there's 
dangers in skimming because uh, you might look at something and you're like, well, there's a lot of names in there. I don't know how to pronounce anything. I'm just going to skim over that because, you know. Or you hit a story or a section where you're like, um, I don't know what any of that means. I'm just going to set that aside because I guess I'm not meant to know that or it must not be important. And I think that that is a danger that we run when we are trying to do something that should be life-giving to us, and then we miss out on something because of that. We let the practicality of the study overtake the depth of where that should be going for us. So what we're going to talk about is we're going to talk about the importance of study, but I'm going to give you some examples using some of those scriptures. These are all ones that we have done in the women's study that made me be like, wait a second, you know, and I have a, a notebook where I write these things down because I want to know. I want to know, one, is it important? Is there something in there I need to know that's important to the context of what I'm studying? And is there something that I'm supposed to get out of it for right now, this moment, all right? And let's be honest, you're not always going to get a definitive answer. I think we know Bob is so good when we study pulling out things where there are varying scholarly opinions. Sometimes you're not going to get a black and white answer. But you often will see something and you're like, you know what? Yeah, that resonates with me. I'm on, on board with that. I think that that's correct. But you might read somewhere like, no, I don't think so. But it's still important to know what some of those other points of view are. Why? Because maybe as you continue to study the Bible and God leads you through other passages and concepts and disciplines, you start to notice that perhaps you're having faulty thinking on something and that you need to rethink your position on something. Or it will line up with your thinking all along and you're like, yes, I feel solid about that. So it's important. And you also, it helps you know where other people are coming from, all right? You know, you can look in there and it can make you ponder some scenarios that you had not necessarily considered before when you're studying and you're looking through um, uh, commentaries and, and parallel scriptures. It's important, you know, and then from there, it usually gets you diving into other scriptures so that you can try to support and, and learn more about what you're reading. And a lot of times people have a problem with rabbit trails, but I think a rabbit trail in the Bible is a trip well spent, all right? In the women's study, there are times that we are like, okay, everything else is getting put down and the Holy Spirit has taken us here. And I feel like it's important to be okay with that, to really let the Holy Spirit guide you. Bible, uh, stay in the Bible, makes for great conversation. So let's face it, most people have somebody in their family or a friend that you know that is always trying to discredit the Bible and they always pick out some weird random scripture or story to, to so what do you think about that? And if you know, because you've taken time to study, you know, you can at least be familiar, obviously, with the story and you can have a conversation that is not putting you on the defensive. You should never be forced to answer something you're not prepared to answer. Because so if you don't know, tell them that you're going to study on that. And then let's go back and discuss it. So the studying the Bible is just, it's so powerful. 
So I picked out some stories to give you examples of what I'm talking about, give you some ideas on how to do that, and these may be stories that you yourself have questioned. So our first one, we're just going to get going. I just love these, okay? The first story is out of 2 Kings, and to set the stage, uh, Elisha, Elijah's intern for the last 10 years, and let me just say, I just love thinking about Elijah having an intern. How fun is this? Prophet interns. That's so cool. Uh, so practical. Uh, so he's, uh, Elisha, Elijah's been taken up to heaven. Elisha's taken over for him. Everybody knows this. And things are, people are already starting to approach Elisha to ask him for help. So the people in the town of Jericho, they come to him and they say, you know, our town is in the most beautiful place but our water's the worst. It gets everybody sick. It's terrible. We need help with this water situation. So one of Elisha's first miracles is he goes to the town of Jericho. He purifies the water. And it's right after that miracle that we pick up the story. So we're in 2 Kings 2, verses 23 through 25. So Elisha left Jericho and went up to Bethel. As he was walking along the road, a group of boys from the town began mocking and making fun of him. Go away, Baldy, they chanted. Go away, Baldy. Elisha turned around and looked at them, and he cursed them in the name of the Lord. Then two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of them. From there, Elisha went to Mount Carmel and finally returned to Samaria. Wait, what? What just, what just happened? You know, so... I don't know about you, but when I read that, I'm like, I just don't feel like I can move on uh, and just forget that I just read that. And so um, if I have to, I, you know, I'll finish with the reading I have, but that absolutely makes it into the notebook for some further study. And it's important to, to study it, I think, often when you're in the midst of these things, because if it's in there, again, I think it's in there for a reason. So in the study of this small piece of scripture, this story, I did a few things. This is my default strategy, so I'm going to lay it out for you guys. And you just, you know, if there's something in there that you think is helpful, just make a note of it and pick that out and, and throw it into your repertoire. So I start with prayer. Always, always, always I start with prayer. Pray to the Holy Spirit that he will reveal to me what I need to know, what's important about this scripture. How does it deal with me today? Does it deal with me today right now? you know, and give me the wisdom to know when I need to move on, if it's something that I'm struggling with. Sometimes those things get set aside for further study later, and that's okay, but I like to at least give it a try. And then I look for other mentions of the story. So this right here, your Bible, is an amazing reference tool because as Pastor Bob taught last week, there are many books in the Bible that talk about the same events from different perspectives and with different, um, with different reasons for being told that way. So uh, in the Old Testament, in Kings and Chronicles, it's much like that. But when I looked in there, there really wasn't another mention of that story. Okay, so no help in that particular uh, search. So then I go to Bible Hub, one of my favorite online tools, biblehub.com, and I like it because it shows different translations of the Bible. It has commentaries and sermons. It allows you to do word study in the original language, whether it's Hebrew or Greek or Old Testament. So we're looking at the Hebrew on that. So that was my next stop. And when I'm looking at these parallel translations, so I usually use the NLT because I like how that reads. 
But sometimes wordings are different and something can be clear by just looking at it in a different translation. So as I'm looking at that, I see some small differences, like some of the translations clarify that these are female bears that came out and mauled the 42 boys. Be honest with you, that's not where my problem lies, whether or not they're female or male bears. So, okay, so maybe I make a note of that and, and say later I'll maybe look and see if that's significant, but for where I am right now, that's not where my problem is. Um, and then I look and I see that some of the translations say small boys or little children, all right? I'm a mom, I have an issue thinking of toddlers, you know, having some. So I do some word study in the Hebrew and I see uh, where the combination of words that make up this young boys is, uh, is used in several other places in the Bible, uh, variations of it. Like Solomon, when he takes over as king, because he's a young man when that happens. All right, and I'm reading some commentaries, I'm, and I'm thinking to myself, okay, I, that makes sense to me. You know, it doesn't specifically say the ages of the boys, so I have to remember that, but given the context and where this language has been used before, it is reasonable to believe that these were not little children, that they were teens or men in their 20s. They were young, but that they weren't little children. Okay, so I feel a little bit better. I can at least move on to the next step from there. I did a little searching just to give you a visual, and I've got this painting, and it might be a little bit hard to see. Here's Elisha down here. These kids look kind of young to me, but you all know the truth of the word steady, right? And in the background, there are some bears mauling people, okay? Believe it or not, this is one of the less heinous graphics I found for this story. But one of the reasons I pulled this one out was that you can't find this particular um, image in greeting cards if you really want to make it weird, all right? And I'm not kidding. You guys think I'm kidding? Not kidding. Available in a greeting card. And I'm just saying, if you don't, just don't do that. Don't do that. But um, so the next step I took in my studies, I started checking cross-references. Now, because this story isn't mentioned elsewhere in the Bible, the cross-references aren't taking you to other instances of the story that might give you some more information. They're cross-referencing scriptures that might help you with the biblical basis of what's happening. So the scripture that got brought up, um, one of the ones listed is in 2 Chronicles, and it appears to support the severity of Elisha's response. Because in just reading this, you just think to yourself, gosh, it seems like you went a little overboard, like disproportionate to what happened. But this scripture in Chronicles, and we're going to put this up here, 2 Chronicles 36, 15, and 16. The Lord, the God of their ancestors, repeatedly sent his prophets to warn them, for he had compassion on his people and his temple. But the people mocked these messengers of God and despised their words. They scoffed at the prophets until the Lord's anger could no longer be restrained and nothing could be done. So to make sure we understand context, I go back, I read the full chapter of that, that full chapter of Second Chronicles 36, I want to make sure I understand the context and whether or not what's being said is relevant to what we just saw happen. And in this case, this is where um, it's referencing when the Lord gives the Israelites over to Nebuchadnezzar. He 
destroys Jerusalem and he takes whatever survivors there are with him to Babylon as exiles. So a very, very harsh punishment for the mocking and disregarding the prophets that were sent. And as I'm reading through the commentaries to make sure are there perspectives I haven't considered, there's mention about where the boys came from. They came from Bethel, which was the poster child for idolatry, all right? So we can kind of see these weren't just people maybe just, you know, guys on their way from point A to point B with the intentionality and the repetition of their words, throwing out, you know, go away, baldy. There's intention behind that. And where they came from was not friendly to who Elisha would be as a prophet. And just a a side note, the baldy part, um, baldness was seen as an infirmity. It could be a sign of leprosy. It would be an easy target for somebody trying to um, give them a hard time and run them out of town. So those are all things to think about. And when we look at it, we have to, to... Again, as we're looking through these commentaries, what are some of the other things they pull out? And Matthew Henry had something I thought was a great, just a great quote. The prophet acted by divine impulse. If the Holy Spirit had not directed Elisha's solemn curse, the providence of God would not have followed it with judgment. And I thought about that for a little bit. So Elisha spoke on behalf of God. He was God's mouthpiece. He was a representative of God. So when they were mocking Elisha, they were mocking God directly. And if Elisha had just been mad because they were, you know, yelling at him and calling him baldy and he, and he curses them in the name of the Lord, if God wasn't with him, would he have sent the bears? Because that didn't happen because of Elisha. That happened because of God. And we don't see where God tells Elisha to curse them in that way. But we have to believe that if God followed through on it, he was certainly on board because he didn't do it just because Elisha said it. And somebody, somebody asked me something funny in between services. He was like, they asked me, so why didn't the rest of the boys run away? Certainly they could have, could have made it out before all 42 of them were mauled. And I would say to you, if God had been on their side, some of them would have made it, made it away. God was making a point. And it just seems brutal for sure, but they didn't have Jesus. They had prophets that had to be credible and be able to give the word of the Lord to these people. Their job was so important. And if they disregarded the prophets, therefore disregarding the word of the Lord, the, it would be catastrophic. So it was not lightly done. So I read all of this, and I, I finally get to a point where I'm remembering a study that we've just finished in the women's, that's, old, that's New Testament, rather, in Galatians, where Paul is teaching, and he speaks clearly about our responsibility for our own conduct, and that there are consequences to our conduct. And this uh, scripture we're going to put up, I think I have Galatians 6, 7. I chose the Amplified because I feel like it's very clear Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. He will not allow himself to be ridiculed, nor treated with contempt, nor allow his precepts to be scornfully set aside. For whatever a man sows, this and this only is what he will reap. So this is an idea all the way through the Old Testament that carries through to the New Testament. So after I did that, I'm I'm like, fair enough. I get it. 
as harsh as that seems, it's appropriate. It's an appropriate story in here when we're talking about the prophets and moving in to the things that are about to happen with Israel. So our second story, we're gonna move into the second story. To set this one up, we've just finished in the book of Joshua. And, and in that book, uh, Joshua's leading people to the promised land. They're working on getting um, all of the nations that are occupying that land out of there so that they can take possession of the land that God has promised them. Joshua's died, and they're continuing their fight at this point against the Canaanites. So they asked the Lord, which tribe should go in first as we continue this battle? And God tells them, Judah. And then Judah goes, they get some of their relatives and friends and Simeon, and they're like, you know, come with us, let's get the ball rolling on this. And they go out to, to work on these attacks to get control of this land for themselves, the things that still were not um, given over to them yet. And so we pick up in Judges 1, 4 through 7. When the men of Judah attacked the Lord, gave them, okay, when the men of Judah attacked, the Lord gave them victory over the Canaanites and the Perizzites, and they killed 10,000 enemy warriors at the town of Bezek. While at Bezek, they encountered King Adonai, Bezek, and fought against him, and the Canaanites and Perizzites were defeated. Adonai, Bezek, escaped, but the Israelites soon captured him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. Adonai Bezek said, I once had 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off, eating scraps from under my table. Now God has paid me back for what I did to them. They took him to Jerusalem and he died there. Yeah, that is another wait what for me. You know, I, because you move from that point into the rest of the battle and I don't ever remember seeing precedence for that. And I'm thinking that seems barbaric and brutal and out of character. So again, I stop. I've got so many questions about this passage and I go into my study strategy because I need to believe that this makes sense. I need to have that confidence that the word of God makes sense. So I start with my prayer. I look for other mentions of that story. There's no, no other mentions in there. I pull it up on Bible Hub. I look at the parallel translations, I do a little word study, and yep, sure enough, they do mean thumbs and big toes, all right? So I'm like, okay. Um, as I go into the cross-references, Leviticus comes up. So we're going to show you that scripture, Leviticus 24:19. Anyone who injures another person must be dealt with according to the injury inflicted. So many of us know this as an eye for an eye, all right? That idea. So okay, so maybe this is justified based on that Levitical law. I go into the commentaries. Again, a great jumpstart in the commentaries, but remember, they are not the final word. These are just people, human beings like you and me, who have done study, and some of them are much farther along in, in how they do study. Um, but again, there wouldn't be so many uh, different viewpoints if they were infallible. So you've just got to remember that. It's a jump start to get us going. And the practical part that came out from that study is that these mutilations did have a practical aspect to them. By cutting off thumbs, it made uh, warriors unable to hold like a sword or a weapon. And cutting off toes kept them from running and escaping. Now remember, this king had just escaped 
and they had captured him, and that's when they did this. Okay, so I look at that, and I think, all right, maybe that is, maybe that does make sense. Um, But I also read in the commentaries how doing that would be considered, outside of the Levitical law sense, a blemish on the Israelites' reputation. Because it was not a method that had originated with them, it had originated with the Canaanites. It had originated outside of, of their history, and they adopted it in that instance with that king. And a lot of the commentaries kind of just left it there, but I'm going to say that didn't sit right with me. It just seemed like in my prayer that there was something else that I was supposed to be looking at. So... I went to some other um, good resources, Bible.org, Got Questions Ministry, Faith Life, Study Bible Online. These are some good ones. And I looked for, for some more expanded papers and studies on that specific story. And that brought me back to Deuteronomy 7, where God is super clear that when they are going out there, to get the promised land, to take possession of the promised land that he has told them they will have, they are to destroy the Canaanites and kill the kings and wipe their names from the records. There's nothing in there about taking retribution. There's nothing in there about holding onto them as as a captive example. That's not what God said to do. There's Levitical law, and there's what God told them to do in this particular situation. And even though the king himself said, I guess this is fair because this is what I've done to others, there's nowhere in there where it shows that they, the Israelites, consulted with the Lord to ask what they should do with the king. And to be fair, God had already told them, you should be killing these kings. You're not leaving them. And we see time and time again where the Israelites didn't do what they were supposed to do, uh, or they did it kind of a little bit, like in this case with the king, you know, and other times where instead of killing all the people in the nation, which I know for us, it's so hard to even think about that, but God knew them and God knew what would happen. And in some of these cases, it wasn't like they did it out of the goodness of their heart. Just go on and enjoy the rest of your life. They enslaved them to do the hard work that they themselves did not want to do. Now, Joshua, he knew how to be obedient. If you want to read about the five southern kings in the caves in Joshua 10, he killed those kings. He he did it the way God told him to do it because he as well could see the tenuous nature of what they were going through and the cyclical uh, nature of the Israelites and their faithfulness, unfaithfulness, faithfulness, unfaithfulness. So Judah and Simeon, they have partial success in their battles in the hill country, but not in the plains. And how does this resonate with me when I'm reading this? this? How does this pertain to me? I could see where the Israelites had that tough time with complete obedience. And I'm sure at times they thought it was justified. You know, how many times do do we do that? We try to justify our actions based on something that really isn't a thing in that moment. And their uh, inability to be obedient 
caused them to have failure after failure in securing this land that God had promised them. And so the idea of obedience is consistent throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. You know, how often is it that it's us throwing up obstacles to the promises that God has made us, you know, and we're the ones throwing up the obstacles for having that be fulfilled no matter how we're trying to justify it. It happens that way. So I'm like, okay. Even though that story is tough for me, there are a lot of layers of why that story might have been in there, but the one the Holy Spirit was showing me was the one of obedience. That what happened that might seem like a little offhand thing, that disobedience is a thread that is over and over and over, and they hurt themselves because of that. All right, so we're coming up to the last story, everybody. So to set this one up, we're staying in Judges. I have to say Old Testament is awesome for these kind of stories. The New Testament is good too, but I want you guys to be start, starting to think of those things you've read, and I hope that you're going to go out and you're going to start researching those things rather than thinking, I'm just not going to know. So to set up the last story, we're staying in Judges. We've seen Israel uh, has failed to fully take their land. And they didn't, uh, as Anna likes to say, they didn't drive out all the ites, right? You know, they, they didn't do it. And they didn't follow directions to tear down the altars. And they didn't follow directions about not having covenants with these people. So they intermarried and there were a lot of these things happening. And God, he finally tells them, you know, I'm going to stop helping you drive these nations out. And I'm just going to let them be a constant thorn in your side and a constant temptation. So he turns the Israelites over to the king of Aram and the Israelites live in this wretched place of opposition to God for eight years before they finally cry out to him. And once they cry out to him, God, because he is merciful, he, he acknowledges his original covenant with them and he, raises, he starts raising up judges to help them and to deliver them from these oppressors. Just like Jesus is... He's like the one that intercedes for us, the one that saves us all the time. These are foreshadows of these things. So when God starts raising up these judges to rescue them, even though they are not, you know, they'll be faithful and then they're not faithful, you know, but he keeps doing it. And we see Othniel, we see Ehud, and there is a truly a heinous story that goes along with Ehud in chapter three of Judges. So I'll just let you read that on your own, but... Um, it really just seems messed up, okay? And I'm just saying, I've researched that one too, but I couldn't find any way to really talk about that in a way that wasn't disturbing. So I'm just gonna leave that one to the side. Um, and we're gonna look at Judges 3:31. After Ehud, Shamgar, son of Anath, rescued Israel, he once killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad. And then the Bible goes directly into chapter four about Deborah. And I'm like, wait, what? I mean... I really feel like there should be like a good job, way to go, that's amazing. But it's just that one verse. So we go into study mode and the parallel translations don't show anything really different or surprising in that. I look for cross references and he is mentioned in one other verse in the Song of Deborah and it doesn't really give any context to this particular battle, but he's, he's mentioned there. Um, and that mention just leads us to believe that it was dangerous times. And if you're fighting Philistines with ox goads, I think, yeah, I believe that, right? I don't have any problem with that. 
Looking at the word study doesn't show anything unusual. Strong's Hebrew concordance notes that an ox goad is a goad for oxen. So that is not really, nothing unusual about that. The commentaries, one thing I thought was kind of interesting with that, the commentaries revealed that neither Shamgar's name or that of his father is Jewish. So he could have been coming from a mixed lineage. And some even note that his name could be a reference, son of Anath, could have been a reference to do with the Canaanite goddess of war. All right, so there's some interesting things to think about, but really nothing that helps clear up why that verse is in there for me. The picture of the ox goad, I'll just bring this up here real quick. Um, I can see where that can be modeled, right, into a weapon. So that's believable to me. So this, there's elements of this story that you're like, okay, I, I can see how this is working. Israelites, they were, you know, they're oppressors, the people that were in that land with them they were taking their weapons away. That's not a big surprise. So the Israelites were forced to use whatever was available to them. Think about Samson with the jawbone when he kills a thousand Philistines, right? Except he got way more verses. So, all right, I'm just gonna throw that out there. You know, you could get a lot more context for that story. I looked into Ellicott's commentary and Ellicott's commentary references a writing by Josephus that has just a sentence about Shamgar in there. But what the sentence talks about is that Shamgar is, is, dies in the first year of his governorship. So that gives me some context as to why maybe there's only one verse. He, he died so early after being made a judge, you know, maybe that there wasn't much more to be able to tell about his exploits. Some commentaries noted that it's possible that he just led the fight and didn't necessarily kill all the 600 Philistines single-handedly. Gonna be honest, still impressed. I'm still thinking it's still a good story, but that's okay. I don't have a problem with that. But then I came to Matthew Henry again. He's one of my favorite. And his input in his commentary was, was this. God raised up Shamgar to deliver them, having neither sword nor spear, he took an ox goad, the instrument next at hand. God can make these serviceable, God can make those serviceable to his glory and to his church's good, whose birth, education, and employment are mean and obscure. It is no matter what the weapon is, if God directs and strengthens the arm. Often he works by unlikely means that the excellency of the power may appear to be of God. I thought that was such a powerful insight. And it immediately brought me to the story about Gideon when he's going into war and he's got 32,000 soldiers getting ready to go into war. That would be a good place to be. And God's like, yeah, that's too many, you know, sorry. And they dwindle it down and dwindle it down. God does through some interesting means um, till there's only 300. But why did God do that? God says it super clear so that none of y'all can take credit for what's about to happen. It had to be a victory that was obviously due to the glory of God, to God's sovereignty, that victory. And so that makes sense to me when you take that one verse and look at all the possibility that simply God put that in there, included that in that story, to give us the opportunity to have faith and trust that he is fully capable of accomplishing whatever needs to happen with whatever it is 
that we have. Worship team, you can start coming up. And God still does this today. He gives us that opportunity. And, and he gives us that opportunity to use those unusual things or unusual methods. You know, he does it for us and our encouragement, but he also does it for his glory. And this is one thing that Bob taught on last week, that how could it give God glory if we only did those things that we could do on our own? Anybody could do that, right? How does that give God glory? Why would we want to do anything without him? Sometimes he leads us to things that just seem impossible. And because they're not, when he's in it, that's where the glory goes to God for us and for those around us. So these are just a few of examples. I hope that maybe this has stirred something up in you to make you excited at the idea of not only studying the Bible, but taking things that you have read up until this point and saying, you know what? I'm gonna go back to that and I'm gonna study it a little deeper because God wouldn't have put it in front of me if there wasn't something for me in there. And just do it with, with patience with yourself, all right, and grace with yourself. We um, have the, the gift of God's word right here for us, available to us all the time. God, God's word, the Holy Spirit inside of us, he doesn't leave us to just sink or swim on our own. He makes sure that he is here so we can know that his word is true, it's accurate, it's sufficient. I can see how he works to, to teach us these things over and over in the Bible, Old Testament to New Testament, because it's important that we understand his amazing love for us and his desire for us to be all that he wants us to be. And I think it's a gift. It's a gift meant to be shared. We could study the Bible every day for the rest of our lives and not exhaust the amazing things that he has woven through his words. So just, just if you haven't, if you've started to feel like you're losing that excitement, just try it. Just try it again and just ask him, show it to me, show it to me. All right, so let's go ahead. We'll take communion. I wanna seal this with some communion. If you did not get the opportunity to pick up a communion cup when you walked in, go ahead and grab one of those on the little table back there. And as we take communion, let's, let's just be thankful that again, that he gives us everything that we need, every direction that we need. He takes whatever piece of worthless, whatever we have to work with, and he makes it into something miraculous. And that, that is amazing. And that is encouraging. So Jesus's body broken for us. Jesus's body broken for us. And then peel back the next layer. Jesus's blood spilled for us. Spilled that so that we could be reconciled, so that we could have the Holy Spirit, so that we would be able to go to him directly when we're not sure what our next step is. And my prayer for you guys is that you can see that he always has a next step for you. He's always got something for you because that's who he is. All right, amen.